0: Right, good morning. It's great to see you this morning on this first Sunday in 2024. Glad you're with us. If you're new with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. I used to know that we are in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke here at Fremont E-Free. We like to, take to, we like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. So that means we've been in Luke 1 and 2, which actually per- lined up perfectly with the Christmas season. This morning means we've landed in Luke chapter 3. So let me pray ask that God would be gracious, and then we'll turn our attention to the Word. God, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather as your church, the first Sunday in 2024. And Lord, it is our prayer that in this coming year, we would be a people who individually grow in our love for you. It's also our prayer that we would be a church that becomes more passionate about you as well. God, it's our desire that we would grow in our love for Jesus in this year that we would grow in our understanding of who he is and what he came to do, and that we would have a desire to live for his glory and his renown throughout the duration of this entire year. We know that one of the best ways that we can grow in our love for you is to simply open up your word. And so this morning we're praying that as we open up your word in Luke chapter 3, we would indeed grow in our love for the good news of the gospel and our appreciation for what Jesus has done. Lord, we confess that there are lots of things that distract us. I confess in my own life there are things that distract me. But God, I pray that we would be able to set aside those distractions and that we would be able to learn more about who you are and we would grow in our love for you even today. Oh Lord, please be gracious to us sinners. Help us to see your word clearly and to understand greatly the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So I didn't become a Christian until my freshman year of college, but I did grow up going to church. And because of my experience in going to church and attending Sunday school classes, in my growing up years, I at least had a vague familiarity with many of the characters in the Bible. I may not have known Jesus in the sense of having a saving relationship with him, but I could tell you about various different people from both the Old Testament and New Testament. I could even sing you a few songs about Noah building an archie arky or Father Abraham having many sons, Or the wee little man Zacchaeus climbing up a sycamore tree. Now I'm not saying I actually understood those stories or their true meaning. And I certainly did not understand how those stories fit together in the overarching message of the Bible. But I did have some basic Bible knowledge and at least some awareness of characters in the Bible. But I have to admit that while I knew many of the characters, there were always certain people and stories from the scriptures that intrigued me more than others. For example, I always loved the story of Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, what's not to love about a guy having the courage to stand up for his beliefs to the point that he's he's willing to be thrown into a pit of lions and risk certain death, but then God miraculously delivers him from the lions, and he escapes unscathed. It's an amazing story, and because of that, I was always a big Daniel guy growing up. But Daniel and his escape from the lions wasn't the only story in the Bible that got my attention. I was also fascinated by Jonah and the big fish, David and Goliath, Joseph and his coat of many colors. But of all the stories and characters in the Bible that got my attention in my growing up years, there's no doubt that one of the characters that most intrigued me and made me wonder what is going on with this guy was the mysterious John the Baptist. Now in my mind, John the Baptist was just kind of a weird guy. He lived in the wilderness, he wore clothing made of camel's hair, and perhaps most notably, his diet consisted of locust and wild honey. Now, I had lots of questions about how he secured that diet. I wonder, well, how did he get that? But anyone who was willing to eat grasshopper-like insects had my attention. In my young mind, John the Baptist was a wild man, an intriguing man, no doubt, but kind of an odd duck. But interestingly enough, in Luke chapter 3, when Luke describes the ministry of John the Baptist, he doesn't really mention any of the strange things that intrigued me so much in my growing up years. Luke briefly alludes to John's time in the wilderness, but there's no reference to his peculiar clothing or his unique diet. Instead, Luke focuses primarily on the role of John the Baptist and even more so on the content of John's message. Because Luke focused on those things, I think that's where our attention should be this morning, too. Listen, I don't know what comes in your mind when you think of John the Baptist. Maybe you've never heard of him before this morning. Or maybe like me, when you hear the name of John the Baptist, you immediately begin thinking about unusual clothing and a bizarre diet. But whatever may initially come in your mind when you hear the name John the Baptist this morning, rather than focusing on his eccentric nature, I want us to think about why John the Baptist came. And even more so, I want us to think about the content of John's message Because while John may intrigue every six-year-old boy in the world with his unique diet, the reality is that John's message is far more important than what he wore or what he ate. And in fact, I think you could make the argument, and I would, that what he ate and what he wore were actually meant to accentuate and emphasize the content of his message. So that said, this morning, let's turn our attention to the person of John the Baptist, and let's focus specifically on what John said. That said, if you would, please stand. I have reverence for the reading of God's Word. Standing is a simple way to remind ourselves it's the Word of God, and as such, as do our attention. The words will be on the screen here shortly, or you can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read Luke 3, verses 1 to 20 as our passage this morning. The Word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every, valley, or every mountain excuse me, and hills shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. It's the word of God you may be seated. So again, the focus of our time this morning is going to be on the content of John the Baptist's message. That content is briefly alluded to in verse 3, but doesn't really come into focus until verse 7. That said, the first six verses of Luke 3 are important as they remind us of John's place in history. And also, John's place in the unfolding drama of Scripture. In verses 1 to 2, Luke first helps us to get our historical bearings. In fact, let's look at verses 1 and 2 here. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So in verses 1 to 2, Luke names five Roman officials and two religious leaders. In doing so, Luke not only demonstrates his attention to historical detail, but he also helps us understand where John's ministry fits in the flow of history. Given what we know about the leaders that are mentioned in verses 1 to 2 and the time frame in which they ruled, it's likely that John's ministry begins sometime around 29 AD. Now that's significant because it reminds us John is not some fictional character that lived in a theoretical location at a theoretical time. John was a real person who lived in a real place, surrounded by real people, governed by real leaders. Now, given all the names that are mentioned in verses 1 and 2, we're also reminded that the situation John stepped into, and subsequently Jesus would step into, was politically complicated. During the ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus, there were all kinds of rulers coming from all kinds of different angles with all kinds of different agendas. And this made life and ministry challenging. So the background of verses 1 to 6 is helpful in that it places John in history. But it's also helpful in that it helps us to better understand where John fits in the flow of Scripture. As we've said in past weeks in reference to both the birth announcement and birth of John the Baptist, John is the promised forerunner from the Old Testament who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. This is something that Luke again emphasizes in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 says this, as as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So in verses 4 to 6, Luke is quoting from Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5, which we read earlier to again emphasize that John the Baptist is the voice in the wilderness. He's the promised one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So in verses 1 to 6, then Luke is helping us to see John's place in history. He's also helping us to see John's place in the unfolding drama of Scripture. But again, the vast majority of the passage is concerned with the content of John's message. And I think we could summarize the content of John's message in one word. Repentance. As Luke tells us in verse 3, John went into all the region proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The emphasis in that verse is not on baptism, but on repentance. Baptism was merely something that followed repentance and was meant to serve as a sign that repentance had taken place. Repentance, though, clearly, not baptism, is at the heart of John's message. And this is something that becomes even clearer as we start to look at verse 7 and following. From verse 7 on, it's clear that John's message was primarily focused on a call to repentance. Now, that's not to say his baptism was insignificant. John himself will return the topic in verse 16. But if you were looking for one word to summarize the content of John's message, at least here in Luke 3, it would again be repent or repentance. Because that's the focus of John's message, I want us to zero in on that same topic this morning. I want us to think about repentance and specifically, what I want to do this morning is point out four things we learn about repentance in Luke 3, verses 1 to 20. Now, having said that, before we get to those four things that we learn about repentance, it would probably be helpful for us if we were to stop and define the word. When we were studying Ezra chapter 10 a couple of months ago, finishing our series on the book of Ezra, we talked at length about the topic of repentance because that, too, was the focus in Ezra 10. By the way, the fact that repentance is focused on in Ezra 10 and Luke 3 is a clue to us that these are not isolated events, but rather repentance is a theme that we see everywhere in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Nevertheless, that being said, when we studied repentance in Ezra chapter 10, we defined repentance in this way. We said that repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. A change of mind that results in a change of action. And I think what we'll see in our passage today is that that definition of repentance that we talked about back in Ezra 10 fits perfectly with the teaching of John the Baptist. Having said that, again, let's turn our attention to that that teaching. And again, this morning, we're going to focus on four things that we learn about repentance from the message of John the Baptist. The first thing we learn is simply this. Repentance is necessary. Repentance is necessary. Look at verses 7 and 9 here. He said, therefore, to the crowds... in verses 7 and 9, it seems that some in the crowd are assuming that if they're merely going through the religious motions, like baptism, or if they have the right heritage from the line of Abraham, they will therefore be right with God. But John wants to make sure that everyone understands in the crowd that religious motions and right lineage are not sufficient. Instead, what matters is a humble and repentant heart. And to make that point, John uses some very vivid language. He starts off by addressing the crowd as a brood of vipers. Now, years ago, there was a book written, I think it was in the 1930s actually, entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People. With over 30 million copies sold, it's one of the best-selling books of all time. Now, I've not read the book. I have no intention of doing so it's probably a little bit too self-helpy for my liking. But I feel pretty confident in saying this, that at no point in the book did the author recommend, if you want to win friends and influence people, you should start by referring to everyone around you as a brood of vipers. That type of language in every generation does not tend to engender goodwill, and yet, That's exactly the type of language that John uses here. I think he's doing so in order to make a point. He's trying to awaken the crowds from their state of slumber and apathy. Recently, Tony and I were talking with a friend of ours who attends another church. This is a good Bible-preaching church in another place. And she told us that not too long ago, she was looking around on a Sunday morning, and she felt like she needed to just stand up in the middle of the service and address the congregation and just yell at them, wake up, wake up. Now she didn't because of social conventions. She didn't want to embarrass her family. She wasn't sure how effective it would be. But that's kind of the equivalent of what John does here. He essentially yells at the crowd, wake up. Or as he says in verse 7, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, in asking that question, and then in observing what John says afterwards, I think what John is really saying is this. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come by merely being baptized? Did you think that would be sufficient? Did you not realize that what I'm doing here is not about baptism, it's about repentance? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And by the way, don't even begin to think to yourself, oh, we have Abraham as our father, we'll be fine. In other words, in verses 7 and 8, John is warning, religious motions... Like being baptized are not enough. Spiritual lineage, not enough. In order to be prepared for the Messiah, in order to eventually find salvation, there must come a point of repentance. And that repentance will be evidenced by bearing fruit. If not, as John says it in verse 9, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit in keeping with repentance will be cut down and thrown in the fire. So given what John says in verses 7 and 9, it's safe to conclude then that John viewed repentance as an absolutely necessary piece of the salvation puzzle. If one is going to be right with God, they must be humble enough to see their sin and turn from it. Religious motions, not enough. Spiritual lineage, not enough either. Repentance is necessary. And by the way, lest you think this emphasis on repentance is just something that crazy old John taught. That perhaps John had a few too many grasshoppers and got a little bit loopy. You need to understand that the necessity of repentance is emphasized everywhere in Scripture, including by Jesus himself. In the Gospel of Luke alone, Jesus emphasizes the necessity of repentance on multiple occasions. In Luke 5, verse 32, Jesus says this, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, There's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents Luke 24 verses 46 and 47 Jesus again says this thus is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations so the necessity of repentance is not just something John the Baptist taught it's something Jesus taught too and for that matter so did Peter so did Paul so did the rest of the apostles to be right with God repentance is a necessary part of the equation there has to come a point where you humbly acknowledge your sin and you turn from it and you turn towards God. Now, let me be clear in saying this. I'm not talking here about a works-based righteousness in which we have to live a certain way in order to earn the favor of God. We're saved only by the work of Christ on the cross, period. What I'm talking about here, though, is the Spirit working in such a way that our eyes are open to our own sin, And we acknowledge our sin and we hate it and thus we turn from it. That is a work of God. And he is the one who brings about this type of humility. Listen, if there's one thing I've learned in counseling situations over the years, it's this. You can't make someone else see their sin. Only God can do this. So when a person sees their sin and turns from it, that is a work of God. But the type of turning that comes here as a result of God's grace is a necessary part of the equation. As John warns in verses 7 and 9, religious activity does not save. Spiritual lineage does not rescue either. Or to maybe put it in modern terms, just because you go to church or because you've been baptized doesn't mean you're actually right with God. Similarly, just because you grew up in a Christian home or just because there's a spiritual legacy in your family, that too does not mean that you're right with God. Which, by the way, in a group like this that often is filled with religious people, that's probably a word we need to hear. To be right with God, we must recognize our sin by the grace of God and then turn from it towards God. Repentance is necessary. Secondly, we learn in this passage about repentance, that repentance is evidenced by life change. As we talked about back in Ezra 10, saying you're sorry is not the same thing as being repentant. True repentance is evidenced in the way we live. And this is something that John makes very clear again in this passage. Look at verses 8 to 14 here. Verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. the crowds asked him So in verse 10, it seems pretty obvious that when John talks in verses 8 and 9 about the necessity of bearing fruits and keeping with repentance, some in the crowd are greatly affected by John's teaching. And so they ask the question, what shall we do? In other words, we want to repent. We want to bear fruit. We don't want to be thrown in the fire. What should we do, John? How should we respond? I think John's response to that question in verses 11 to 14 is both comforting and challenging. It's comforting in that John does not respond by saying, there's nothing you can do, you're sunk. It's also comforting in that he does not place impossible demands on those asking the questions. He doesn't say to them, well, you have to uproot your whole lives, go live in a cave. No, that's not what he says. Instead, he gives them highly practical advice for their station of life. Depending upon if they're a tax collector or a soldier, just a member of the crowd, he tells them to be generous towards others. He tells them to treat others fairly to live life ethically, to be content with God's provision. In other words, he gives them very simple, straightforward, practical advice. It's not complicated. But actually, the practical nature of his advice is the challenge. John has an expectation, more importantly, since God's the one giving John the message, God has an expectation that our repentance would not just be theoretical in nature, but practical. There's an expectation, and we saw this in the book of James, that we would actually live out our faith, now again, I know sometimes we can get skittish when we talk about living out our faith because again, it can sound to us like maybe we're talking about works-based righteousness. So again, let me just be as clear as I can here. We're saved by the work of Christ alone, not by our own work. It's nothing we do that earns God's favor. It's what Christ has done. We're saved by the grace of God, period. But if we have the Spirit and if we've truly turned from our sins, thus repented, it will be evident in the way that we live. And as shown by John's teaching in verses 11 to 14, it will be evident in the way that we treat others. Recently, someone was telling me about a professing Christian they know that causes trouble wherever they go. At work, at home, the neighborhood, the gym, in the schools. This professing Christian is just kind of a pain in the neck. He's developed a reputation for being somewhat ethically shady. Now listen, I have no idea the heart status of this professing Christian, so I wouldn't make a definitive statement, well, they for sure don't know God. But I will say this. John's teaching and Jesus' teaching too would at least make me concerned for a person like that. Because genuine repentance, which is necessary, is evidenced by the way that we live. It's evidenced by the way we treat others. It's evidence in the way that we operate when no one's watching. It's evidence in the way we trust God. So let me just say this. If there are gaps in your life between what you say you believe and how you live, or if there are gaps in your life between what the Scripture teaches and how you live, Let me just urge you this morning to take those gaps seriously, to confess your sin, to turn from it, ask God to help you, and then go the other way. Because repentance is evidenced by life change. That's the second thing we learn about repentance in Luke 3. Third thing we learn about repentance is simply this, repentance is part of the good news. Probably the most interesting verse in the passage occurs in verse 18. Verse 18 says this, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now, the way verse 18 reads, it reads like a summary statement. With many other exhortations. In other words, I think what he's saying parenthetically is this. With many other exhortations, like the ones that we've just talked about, he preached good news to the people. Now, the reason why I find that verse to be intriguing and why I find myself thinking about it a lot this week is because what John is teaching The idea that it's good news seems kind of counterintuitive because up to this point, what John has preached is not exactly what most of us would call good news. I mean, think about the content of verses 7 to 17. In verses 7 to 8, John refers to the crowd as a brood of vipers and then challenges them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 9, John warns that the axe is now at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down thrown in the fire. Verses 10 to 14, John exhorts the people to live differently in keeping with repentance. In verse 16, he talks about Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there's quite a bit of question about what the fire is there, but almost certainly it's a reference to either God's judgment or at least a purifying fire. And then in verse 17, John describes Jesus as having a winnowing fork in his hand, in his hand which he will gather wheat to the barn, that's those who are believers, but the chafe, that's those who are unbelievers, will be burned with an unquenchable fire. So in summary, in verses 7 to 17, John talks a lot about repentance and the need for repentance because of the coming judgment of God. And yet, get this, when Luke summarizes that message in verse 18, he describes it as good news. And my question for you would simply be this, how is that good news? When I think of good news, I think of God's great love for us that he demonstrated his sin to die on the cross for us. I think of the forgiveness of sins. I think of the peace of God that is freely offered us in the gospel. But Luke seems to be implying here that a message of repentance and God's coming judgment is part of the good news too. And you know what? I think he's right. I think he's right. I think a message of repentance and God's coming judgment is indeed actually good news. Now hear me. There's no doubt that many will not receive a message of God's coming judgment and the need for repentance as good news. And John the Baptist's life itself testifies to that reality. As the last two verses of this passage inform us, John called Herod to repentance and it landed him in prison. And eventually, if you know anything about the story of John the Baptist, you know that it will lead to John the Baptist's head being on a platter. So it's true, not everyone thinks that a message of God's coming judgment and the need for repentance are good news. In fact that's still true today isn't it there's a reason why many churches today simply refuse to preach about God's coming wrath or the eternal fires of hell or the need for repentance it's because they don't see it as good news they love to talk about Jesus gathering children together but they're not quite as excited about Jesus holding a winnowing fork in his hands but listen both pictures of Jesus are accurate and the winnowing fork is part of the good news too and here's why As commentator Leon Morris points out, unless we can be sure that in the end, evil will be decisively overthrown, there is no ultimate good news. I mean, think about it this way. If there is no coming judgment of God, then there is no guarantee that evil will be finally vanquished one day. This week, we took a quick trip to Denver with our kids because our son Dawson had a doctor appointment at Colorado Children's Hospital. On the way back, we stopped at a gas station to get some gas And when we went in to use the restroom, we had one of those situations where our our spidey senses just started kind of going off as parents. I won't get into all the details here, and we're not sure about anything. But there are just some characters at the gas station that just seem like maybe they're up to no good. Again, I'm not saying we knew anything definitively. Even if we would have wanted to report something, there really was nothing to report. It was just a hunch. But at any rate, when we got back in the car, we had to have a hard discussion with our kids about how not everyone in the world is out looking for their good. We even had to start talking about things like human trafficking and what it can look like and how we can protect ourselves. And what broke my heart is that we had to explain to our kids why people are trafficked and what they do and what their motivations are. And as we're having this conversation in the car, my heart is breaking because I'm just thinking the world we live in is sick. Brokenness is everywhere. And so the idea that God would not come and he would not judge wickedness, to me, that is actually terrifying. The idea that he will come and that he will judge wickedness and that he will make things right, that is comforting. It's good news, actually. Furthermore, the call to repentance is good news because it implies if we repent of our sins, there's hope to be found. Think of it this way. Learning that you have cancer, that's bad news. Finding out that there's a cure for your cancer and that it's treatable, that's good news. In the same way, the call to repentance is suggesting there is a cure to the problem, to quote again another Bible scholar, this time Robert Stein, the call to repentance means that the tragedy and consequences of sin are not irreversible and that's good news. So friends hear this, it's not mean-spirited to call our friends and family to repent. It's not harsh for us to stand here on Sunday morning and preach about God's coming judgment and call for sinners to turn from their wicked ways. It's loving and it's good news because it implies forgiveness is possible. It implies that if we repent, there's hope to be found. And indeed, there is. And that brings us to the fourth and most important thing we learn about repentance in this passage. And that's simply this. The need for repentance points us to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Now here's something you, you need to understand. This is crucial to understand the role of John the Baptist. John's role was only to be a forerunner. John's baptism was only preparatory there's a reason why none of us are baptized in the name of John anymore his job was simply to point to the one to come and his call to repentance was meant to help us see our meant to help us see our sin and turn from it but ultimately it was meant to remind us that there's one coming who could rescue us from that sin so once you to think of John's role in this way a road sign might be helpful in that it tells us the Grand Canyon is up ahead, and thus it serves a valuable role. In fact, if you're driving to the Grand Canyon, you see the sign that you're on the way to the Grand Canyon. It's like, okay, this is good. We're on the right direction. But no one in their right mind would get out of their car and just look at the road sign for hours. Oh, look at the sign. The font is just incredible. I love the way they painted this. No one would do that. right? They would see the sign, and they would say, we got to get to the canyon. And we are going to gaze at the canyon. In the same way, John the Baptist serves a valuable role in that like a road sign, he's pointing ahead. But don't gaze at the road sign. Go to the canyon. Go and see who John is pointing to. John, and it's called a repentance, points us to our need for a Savior who could rescue us from our sin. Or to say it more simply, John points to Jesus. And listen, if there's anyone who understands this, it's actually John himself. Look at verses 15 to 17. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's something you need to understand. In the ancient world, sandals and feet were incredibly dusty and dirty, so much so that the idea of unstrapping someone's sandal was something that not even some slaves were required to do. Only the lowest of slaves would be required to unstrap the sandal of a master because for everyone else, that task was viewed to be too menial and too filthy. And yet John the Baptist says this of Jesus, I'm not even worthy of that task. Even the lowest of tasks would be too lofty in light of who he is. Essentially, John is saying this, how could I even dare to unstrap his sandal? He's so much mightier. His is so much greater. He is the judge of all the earth. John understood that everything he did was meant to point to the Savior. This is why in John 3.30, he says, he must become greater, talking about Jesus, I must become less. John understood his job was to point to Jesus. Everything he did was in this vein, including his message of repentance. The call to repentance implies that we need to turn. It implies that we've sinned and we're sinners. But the good news of John the Baptist is the one who's coming offers forgiveness of sins. And so we turn from our sin because we have something to turn to, Jesus. If Jesus was not a part of the equation, then John's message would be nothing more than fantastic moralism. But Jesus is a part of the equation. And so John the Baptist's message is not just turn from your sin and repent. It's turn to Jesus. Turn to the one who's coming. So yes, hear me clearly. We must repent of our sin. And that repentance will be evidence in the way that we live. But we're turning from our sin to something better. We're turning to the Savior. Repentance and belief, then, are two sides of the same coin. We turn from our sin as we turn to Jesus. And as we do so, our life is transformed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes our mind about what's right and good, and this leads to a changed life. Hence, the Holy Spirit is the one who's causing repentance to happen. So hear this. It's true that the message from John the Baptist in Luke 3 is primarily about repentance, but do not miss that the call to repentance is ultimately pointing us to our need for a Savior. Looking to Christ is the ultimate aim of John's ministry, and that's something we can't lose sight of this morning. So yes, it's okay for us to acknowledge John the Baptist wore weird clothes. And yes, his diet had a little bit of a strange protein that we may not be comfortable with. And yes, he kind of lived in a strange place too. But don't miss his message. Repentance is necessary. Repentance is evidenced by life change. But repentance is part of the good news because it implies forgiveness is possible. And that forgiveness is found only in Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, That really is the substance of John's message. Repent, but most importantly, look to the one who's to come. Look to the Savior. Look to Jesus, the one who takes away our sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder that we have from John the Baptist here of our need for repentance, but ultimately of our need to look to the Savior. And so this morning, I pray that we would follow John's lead If there's areas of unconfessed sin in our life, I pray this morning we would repent of those areas of sin and that we would run to the Savior. God, we know this morning what we're talking about has nothing to do with earning your favor, has everything to do with what Christ has done. Has everything to do with being abhorred by our sin because we know there's something better to live for, and that's you. And so this morning I pray that we be encouraged by what your word teaches, that we turn from our sin and we look to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen to so the-